us every day, Lord. Father, as we come to difficulties, Lord, as we are attacked, as we even uh, allow ourselves to be carried away, and yet your Spirit is there to check us, to encourage us, to rebuke us, Lord. And we thank you for your uh, faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for this morning, the people you brought, the work you continue to do, all that you supply, Lord, all that you just bring to pass. And Lord, we just worship you for just your loving kindness. Lord, teach us tonight as we move through these chapters, as we um, get a good look at Amos, Lord, just and how you use them, Lord, to just proclaim your word, that people not be lost. And so, Lord, bless your word, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Oh, welcome any visitors that might be here tonight. Um, we have baptism tonight, right after the study. So what I'll do is I'll terminate. And as soon as the study is over, those of you who are going to get baptized, how many people are going to get baptized? Let me see some hands here so we can get an idea. Okay. Just go change either in the back restrooms or the ones over there by the gym or in the whichever ones. And then bring back with your clothes and we'll line up in the front here. And I'll share with you guys about baptism. And then we'll give you instructions. You'll go in that office and take you back. We'll dunk you one at a time. You bring your towel with you. And this way you'll give it to the person. We'll have it on this end ready for you. And uh, we'll give you instructions again. But right afterwards, so I'll just dismiss you and we'll go do that. And we'll. But make sure you pick up your children. If you have children, pick the kids up. Don't leave them in there. Okay? Because some of these people have to go home. All right? And then that. This is a note from Fernando. You don't want to mess with Fernando. All right. Great. All right. You have a Bible? Want to turn to Amos chapter 5, please? Amos chapter 5 and 6 tonight. Amos, uh, the prophet, has given to us some incredible material that he wrote down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to record past and present history, as well as to reveal future prophecy. Uh, We saw the judgment of the nations, 8 in number, in chapter 1 and 2. We have observed the words of the Lord in two sermons in chapter 3 and 4. Now we are going to take a look at the lamentations and warnings of the Lord in chapter uh, 5 and 6, which is the third sermon. And so let's begin here in chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. And this morning we did verses 1 through 15 in depth. So we're not going to cover this in depth, but we'll move through it in general commentary. So in verse 1 through 3, you have the lamentation for the nation of Israel. Uh, As we'll see, this is um, a very sad situation as the prophet mourns the nation that in fact um, is dead regarding the things of God. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Hear the word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, The city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel." This is a death proclamation. The call is to listen to her own funeral song. The summons to hear the words of the Lord that the prophet declares here 
It's an imperative command, as we said this morning. And um, this, again, begins the third sermon that moves through both chapters. And mark the words against them. This is not for them. God is not for them. Neither is the prophet for them. The prophet has no no um, uh, difficulty in being on God's side. Um, no prophet changed their mind and said, well, maybe God's just kind of just too strict. And, you know, I just, you know, I've been trying to change his mind. Or That, 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 didn't, that didn't happen. Um, he is the mouthpiece of God. And um, the lamentation is because, as I said, they're coming death. And the word lamentation literally means a dirge or a funeral song. And it's in uh, in a, a poetical form that it could be sung. Um, the house of Israel, again, the ten nations that were given to Jeroboam the first, the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom, you have it under uh, Ephraim sometimes as the head of the ten. You'll have the northern kingdom, Israel. Those are the three terms that are used for the northern. The southern kingdom, the kingdom of David or Judah. Those are the two kingdoms for that, two phrases for that. Um, Notice in verse 2 and 3, uh, the certain doom of Israel is given uh, based on uh, their sinful condition. Um, she's portrayed as a virgin who has fallen, a completed fact. In other words, uh, she has been um, allured, and she's uh, given prey to that allurement, and she's given into that allurement, and she has defiled herself, and she has abandoned her covenant, her loyalty to the marriage covenant with Yahweh, and now she has been living in this state of adultery because, as you know, Jeremiah says he's given the nation the, the certificate of divorce. Um, and throughout the Old Testament, this is uh, uh, declared. And so it's also based on, on her having exhausted God's uh, patience. She will rise no more. In other words, there is a time that God deals with people. We see it from the pre-flood. We see it in the uh, Tower of Babel. We see it. In, in various judgments that God brings, that God deals and warns and all that, and then there's a line that God brings judgment. And God never, um, he told us in Amos 3.7, that God never does anything before he reveals it to his prophets. So God always warns before he brings judgment. So no one can ever accuse him. And we, and we point it out very clearly, and it's important, because the world is so easy to accuse God right away and to jump on the wang. Well, the God of the Old Testament, the God of wrath, I like the New Testament, God of love. Really? There's no difference. Are you kidding me? Just read the gospels, what Jesus says. I mean, his motive is love to save us. But because he's holy, he has to judge. He can't wink at sin. He can't just justify it. He can't just say, well, let's just forget about it. He just can't do that. And so, um, she will not rise. She's going in a divided kingdom to Assyria. Um, and then when Babylon comes on board, um, you're talking about 722, you're talking about the first siege, 606, 596, 586, the final one for the south of the kingdom of David. And then they, Babylon would also conquer Assyria, so all of them would go there, and then the southern kingdom would go there. They would be in Babylon for 70 years as a united nation. They would come back as a united nation. So sometimes people look at things, well, see, here's a contradiction, because they did come back, this and that. Well, it's talking about divided, okay? This is the condition as she's going in. And so, again, if we roll up our sleeves and do a little um, thinking and digging, uh, we'll resolve the apparent contradictions. Uh, notice it's also based on their abandonment uh, by God. Um, she lies forsaken in, in her land. God, 
comes to a point where he does give up. He does, uh, um, the, all he can do is judge because of, of that limit. Now, you and I can fall short of that, but God never falls short of that. We make mistakes. We make bad judgments. We don't have all the information. We have uh, tainted views sometimes towards things or people or something. But God, there's no, none of those problems. So what happens is we bring our human problems, we put them on God, and therefore we fault God, and we say, I could do a better job. Well, so we build a straw man, <laughs> and we spit it on them, and we punch them, and we kick them down. And he said, huh, I don't need him. But if we look at the God of the Bible, we should never worry about his decisions or his justice. The heavens are not pure in his eyes. He can't lie. He's always been. He created everything. You find me somebody better? <laughs> None at all. But it's also based on the fact that God uh, is going to decimate them. And that's literally the one in ten here that's given to us in verse three. Um, thousand or hundred would be left and hundred, ten would be left. So it's a decimation of the nation. Uh, Zechariah says two or three Jews will die under the hand of the Antichrist. Uh, severe judgment. Um, the six million Jews that were killed by Hitler. Severe judgment in many different ways. Um, Jesus says... Uh, uh, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and gave the Jews up in judgment. And he spoke about what would happen to them in 70 AD and the horrible things that would take place upon them. And for the 2,000 years they've been without a homeland, they have rejected their Messiah. And there's been severe consequences to that. He even says, you shall not see me henceforth until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Matthew 23, 37, 39. And so that's when they'll call on their Messiah. That's when they will be reunited as the remnant, the wife of Israel. Not till then. Today, they're secular Jews. When you go to Israel with us, if you go next year, you're going to think that you've got this leader almost convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows his Bible better than you. He is a secular Jew. That's what he does for a living. <laughs> they will accept their Messiah when they're in the midst of the tribulation. Now, in verse 4 through 15, uh, we have the confrontation of Israel by God uh, regarding our sin. In 4 through 7, the pleading of God with Israel is given to us. It says, For thus saith the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with no one to quench it in Bethel. And so, here again, the one speaking is Amos, as the mouthpiece of God. Thus saith the Lord, five times in this chapter, 3, 4, 16, 17, and 27, it's God's authority. He's just a mere vessel. In the New Testament, we have the word for, for a herald, um, Caruso. And a Caruso was a person who was hired by the state to make proclamations, either by the king, the state, or whoever. And it wasn't their message. They were given the message to proclaim. They had no authority to proclaim it. It was vested to them. They were not responsible for the response of the message. They were only responsible for the proclamation of the message. And such are the prophets in you and I as Christians. We are the mere vessel. That message is not ours. It's been given to us. The authority is not ours. It's vested to us. I'm not responsible for your response just for the proclamation. 
It's very, very clear. And yet sometimes we're called to speak out in an arena and in an atmosphere that is not so friendly, not so conducive. Many of these prophets, they were. They were in hostile territory. They weren't applauded. They weren't invited to a banquet and they didn't, you know, roll out the carpet for them. They killed them. They, they persecuted. They chased them out. And yet, the offer gives us the second command, seek me and live. Again, it's a command. Even though God knows there's no turning, he's patient because the remnant is still in view. So the majority are not coming, but the remnant is in view. And the prohibition was against the present idolatry in Bethel, house of God. We've gone over where God met Jacob there in Genesis. We've gone over Bethel. I mean, a Gilgal rolling away, the shame and the reproach of Egypt as they came across into the promised land. And all the males were circumcised that were born during the 40 years. So rolling away of shame in Joshua 5. And now Beersheba, um, the well of seven, where were Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. They had some dealings there. So all these places marked the place where God met the patriarchs, where he gave promises. These were places that had great meaning for the nation in history. That's why we have the uh, Statue of Liberty. That's why we have monuments all over our nation, especially in Washington, D.C. It marks our history. And now we are removing these monuments one at a time from our nation to remove our history. In Tennessee, they just, I believe it's Tennessee, they just removed the Ten Commandments, that big old uh, monument, because of this liberal Supreme Court there. It's ridiculous. One at a time. And so they take over things. Change history. Serve other gods. The reason is given. For Gilgal shall surely go captivity in Bethel. will come to nothing. So the judgment is coming. Um, the offer is repeated again with the promise there in verse 6. Um, he speaks about he'll break through as a fire. The house of Joseph. Destruction. God is a consuming fire. We know that in Hebrews 10.30. And vengeance belongs to him, says the Lord. And the Lord will judge his people. This is Israel, his people. In Hebrews, the church, his people. In the Old, New Testament, same God. No different God. And so, when you get to 7, he says, You who turn justice into wormwood and lay righteousness um, to rest in the earth. So he's addressing these individuals here, the, the evil people, those who are corrupt in their dealings and at the gate where the place of judgment and everything's at, and yet they have no problem with doing this justice and injustice to um, those who are poor or those who are righteous, who seek the Lord. The word their justice, mispat, and the word righteousness, uh, sadiq. They're, they're, they talk about truth and righteousness and justice and hearing the case. They're overlapping and contiguous words um, to emphasize the evil and the corruption that is going on and what God desires and how, how the society can only function under that kind of standard. There must be a moral standard. There must be an ethical standard if things are going to work. You cannot just do your own thing and have chaos and think that a benefit's going to come. If you live in a home with a family, you have a mother, a father, and children, they all have their responsibility, they all have their accountability. And things 
have to be done so everything runs smooth. And if everybody does what they want or don't follow any rules or just don't want to be part of the family and clean the room or everything, then that house is going to be chaotic. It's just real simple. Now just carry that over to a nation. Carry that over to a company or anything else. There must be order. Someone's got to give the orders. Someone's got to submit and carry them out. If you don't have those two pillars, nothing happens. And these two pillars, the one who gives the orders, the one who submits, they both work out the same rule book. That way you know when one's obeying and submitting and the other one's giving the commands. You can't have two rule books. So there must be a standard. There must be morals. There must be ethics. We've seen our nation move into an amoral society. We see what's happened to our nation. It's chaotic. It goes to a point where it becomes unsafe because people get emboldened because there's no consequences. And when there's no consequence, you destroy all authority. Now in verse 8 and 9, um, he introduces them to the one that they have to face and deal with. He's the creator. He says, he, he made the Pleiades, Orion. He turns the shadow of death into morning. He makes the day dark at night. He calls for the waters of the sea. He pours them out in the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. So the Pleiades here in Orion, you know, it's astronomy, the planets and all that. Now in astrology, the study of, of like a horoscope stuff like that, they have all the different Greek mythology and all that. But here the Pleiades, well known as a cluster of constellation, Taurus is under the horoscope and that, but they're not dealing with this. They're just dealing with the actual planet. And it's a constellation known as the Seven Sisters. Also Orion uh, with the hunter. It's a constellation of the um, celestial equator containing uh, bright stars, including regal uh, beetle geese, and it lines up the three forms uh, um, of Orion. And both of these are, are seen in the northern hemisphere, and it changes from winter to summer. So God has created the star, the moons, and everything else for, for the seasons and, and, and for us to measure time. But there's a strong warning in Deuteronomy 4 to never worship the stars, never worship the moon, never worship the sun. You don't have to fear them. I have made them for you. They work for you. The moon gives us our tides in the oceans. It brings the night. The moon is a reflector. It's not a generator. It's not a light giver. It's a light reflector. It reflects the sun the light of the sun. One to rule by day, the sun, the lesser, a reflector by night. The stars, the planets, all of that. And so this is the one they have to deal with. Job 9.9 and 38.31 mentions these also. In those questions that he asked, God asked him, have you, where have you been, Job? Can you, can you handle these planets? Can you control them? You know, and he just humbles Job in those questions there. God turns the shadow of death, meaning there's night and there's day. He divides the day from the night. So you can rest. You can replete your mind and your body. And you can get ready to go for the next day. Um, he calls for the hydrological cycle here in verse 8. Of, um, of the oceans, the water, they evaporate, precipitate, they transport over with the clouds, they downpour on uh, the rain on the mountains and that, and there's weathering, erosion, there's 
then transportation back out to the ocean. It's a complete cycle. Ecclesiastes 1.7 gives us that. And, and, and the oceans are never full. And God just takes care of that to be able to give us drinking water, to take care of the ocean. You know, you buy a house and you have to put in irrigating system and everything else. And you have to spend all kinds of money. But um, God doesn't have to. He takes care of all that. God never has a gardening bill. He doesn't worry about any valves going out, you know, or sprinkler heads sticking. You know, he, he just waters it with the clouds. He takes care of it. No big deal. And so this is the one that's in control, the one who created the sustainer, the maintainer of all that it is. This is the one that they have to deal with. Now, they, they knew he was, okay? They had this, but they didn't want to maintain the knowledge of God, Romans 1 says. So they changed the image of God. Mankind began with the truth of God and has distorted the truth about God. Okay? People say, well, how about those people? Everybody knew at the beginning. Cultures move away from it. But they had the knowledge at one time. I, I believe that the ingredients to concrete was lost at one time from civilization. And it was rediscovered again. Because there's been a period of great advancement and then great deterioration. And certain things have been lost. To this day, we don't know how they embalmed the mummies. That great knowledge has been lost for the most part. So we think we're so smart today, but the only thing we can preserve is maybe some apples or prunes, and if we can them, that's about it. Nothing else. And so here now in, 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 in verse 9, he says, He rains ruins upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. So in other words... Um, he is able to judge and destroy no man or no fortress is strong enough to keep him. And everything he does, he does sovereign and he does perfect and he does everything with all evidence and he does everything to his glory and he never shortchanges anybody. And that's hard for people to understand or to accept because they judge God by their own weaknesses, by their own limitations and therefore they carry it over to him when he's the creator. He's the epitome of perfection. Now, verse 10. Verse 10, we get the oppression and robbery of the poor as a witness of God against them. So, verse 10 is going to point us back to verse 7. The, the ones that were there in verse 7 that were turning justice into wormwood and laying righteousness uh, uh, on, the, on the earth. In other words, they were trampling over the... the uh, the truth of righteousness, they, they were perverting justice, they were ignoring it. And so here now, in, in verse 10, he says, they hate the one who rebukes at the gate. Uh, so the one who's there saying, no, 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 that's not fair. They hate him. They despise him. They mark him. They marginalize him. They kill him. They abhor the one who speaks uprightly. The one who speaks truth completely. They can't compromise. Evil people have no problem lying. Evil people won't have a problem speaking half-truths. They don't have no problem manipulating you. Now you said this engine has only got 60,000. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not telling you it's 160. Yeah, it's got 60,000. No problem. Therefore, because you tread down on the poor and take grain taxes from him. Though you have built 
luxurious houses hewn stone. This is the contrast between the poor and the rich, the wealthy, the corrupt. Yet you shall not dwell in them. So you're going to, you're doing it. You're oppressing them through taxes. You're ripping them off. And yet you're building these luxurious houses, but you're not going to live in them. And you've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. So God says, I'm going to judge you. The first one to go into captivity and who's going to lose everything with the rich people. Now you look at what's going on in our nation today. Okay? And taking money from the hard worker and dispersing it among the lazy people. Well, if our nation gets taken over, the first one that are going to lose everything are the rich. Not the poor people. <laughs> the enemy is going to go to the ones that have all the money. They're the first to lose. That's why I don't understand the mentality of our Congress and our Senate and our judicial system and the office of president. I don't understand it. They're the first that are going to go. For I know your manifold transgressions, verse 12, and your, might, your mighty sins afflicting the just and taking bribes, the, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Once again, the gate is place of judgment. The elders were there. The king was there calling judgment and everything else. We had the example of Absalom stealing the hearts of the people uh, against his father there as he would kiss the people. And uh, you have Ruth being redeemed by Boaz. Um, you have um, um, other aspects in the scriptures where, where, where that gate was the proclamation of it. All that was carried out. And God just lays this evidence against them. Um, now, in, in, in verse 13, he says, Therefore, the prudent keep silent that time, at that time, for it is an evil time. So here in verse 13, um, he is revealing that he's very aware of those people who are courageous, who will not compromise, but also the wise people that at times, sometimes it's best to be quiet because it wouldn't be good to say anything at that point. So he's talking about discretion here. Courage with discretion is very good. Uh, blood and guts get you so far, then they get you killed. So, you know, you, you, you need to use wisdom. And that's what he's talking about here. Um, People that consider, ponder what they're hearing. They, they observe their environment and they make a wise decision whether to speak out now or maybe right now is not the time. So in the midst of this evil time, uh, you have to have courage, but as well as discretion. It's always um, prudent to do that. And the reason is clear, for it is an evil time there at the end of verse 13. Now in 14 through 15, you have the command of God to repent. Because this is the whole goal, Okay. The nation has already been given up to an extent, but the remnant is still in mind. So in verse 14 and 15, he says, Seek good and not evil. Some more commands. That you may live. Live, first of all, during that time that they turn and experience life to the fullest, but live eternally with him when they die. Um, so the Lord God of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, will be with you as you have spoken. So in other words, there's a little bit of sarcasm here. All the things that he's saying here, he says, as you have said, but you really aren't living for me. You aren't doing justice, but you say you are. You say you're for me and that I'm with you, but I'm not. And so it's a form of sarcasm. You do it as a parent to your children when they, 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 they say something. Say, oh, you took the trash out, huh? Well, the, the, the question says they didn't take the trash out. 
I, I thought you told me to take the trash out. Well, I, 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 I meant, you know, from, from the bathroom to out there. I didn't mean that one out to the curb, you know, and you know how we spin all things, right? So the very sarcasm, the rhetorical questions give us the tone and the context of what's going on here. Um, Verse 15 there is uh, God orders them to not do what was displeasing and disagreeable to him. Um, He says, hate evil, love good, imperatives again, commands, establish justice in the gate. This is the elders. He's talking to the leaders in this chapter. He's directing himself to them because they're the ones that have the power. They're the ones that are manipulating and oppressing the people. They're the ones that are getting wealthy off the people. They're the ones that are saying that God is for them and with them when they are total idolaters and corrupt. So people can say a lot of things. But what you tell me about yourself must be verified by your life. Or I have to fault you as either being deceived and not knowing your own deception, or you're a liar. One of the two. There's no other answer. I give you the benefit of the doubt, you might be deceived and wrong, then I need to confront you and correct you in love. But if once I confront you and correct you in love, and you say, no, 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 I, I know what I'm saying, but you can be a Christian and do this, then I say, no, you're, you're, you're lying, and, and you're actually an enemy of God. See, you can't compromise with God's word. It's very clear. This is the plumb line. We hang it down and we put ourselves up against it and, you know, we got to line up with it. That's the main thing. And so when it comes to verse 16 down to 27, we have the judgment over Israel pronounced here. Verse 16 and 17, the nation of Israel would uh, wail at the coming judgment. Um, Verse 16 says, therefore, conclusion, the Lord God of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, says this, There shall be wailing in the streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning, the skillful lamenters for wailing. Those are people they hired professionally. They had no relationship to it. Sometimes Jesus made a mention of that with the Pharisees. They hired mourners, professional mourners, to wail. That's what he's talking about here. He says, In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. So here in verse 16, um, the Lord declares that he is the captain of the armies of heaven that would be fighting against them. And they would be lamenting um, on the highways. Alas, alas, because they see the enemy. It's an, it's an expression of, of fear, panic. They shall call the farmer to mourn. The harvest is being affected. Skillful lamenters, the professionals, I said. The drunkards would wail and lament at the shortage of drink. Verse 17, they had a problem. A bunch of winos. Drunks. We've seen it over and over again through the minor prophets, the northern kingdom. He's going to mention four sins that destroyed them. We see them happening in our own nation, and every nation that's been destroyed. He mentions about, for I will pass through you. That reminds him of the Exodus. He passed through Exodus, judgment on the gods of Egypt in Exodus 12, 12, and 17. Every plague was a judgment against the gods of Egypt. 
and the final one against the firstborn. Because the firstborn was like a god. Pharaoh was like a god. And so they had a national problem of intoxicating. The women were leading this intoxicating party in chapter 4, verse 1. As I look to our nation, as I look at all that goes on, I see such a horrific thing that, that has just destroyed our youth. It always has alcohol, but it's increased through the years, every decade, more and more. Now it's just an epidemic. More people get killed through alcohol, be it through car accidents or whatever. It's horrific. No one says anything about it. You know, that you hear, see the commercials like, you know, like if alcohol made you a professional uh, football player or something or whatever, or, you know, and beer and everything else, as if they, that made them a champion, you know. It's just the opposite. But people buy it. Verse 18 through 20, you have the warning about misunderstanding the day of the Lord. Listen, listen to these guys. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be a day of darkness and not of light. So they were saying, Oh, yeah, yeah, we're looking forward to the day of the Lord. Yeah, I can't wait for it. Are you kidding me? Amos says. The day of the Lord for you is not good. It's a day of judgment. God's going to judge you. Absolutely. It's not a day of blessing for you. It's a day of blessing for the person who's living for the Lord, but not for you. Verse 19, it will be as though a man fled from a lion. So now in verse 19, and uh, 19, it gives a, 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 a scenario of that day. And he compares the day of the Lord to this scenario. Listen to what he says here. He says, um, it, it follows that it will be a day of darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion. So he's walking down the road, a lion comes out, and there were many lions there. David spoke about killing a lion. Um, and, and, and he runs from him, and then a bear meets him, and he runs from him. And, and though he goes into his house, and then he escapes both of them, and, and he leans against the wall, and a serpent bites him, and he dies. In other words, there's no escape. You can't escape my judgment. That's what the day of the Lord is. And you guys are saying, hey, let's have a party. The day of the Lord is coming. I say, are you kidding your 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 mind is 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 dull. Your perception is tainted. You're corrupting the day of the Lord. But see, when you live apart from the scriptures, when you twist the scriptures, when you interpret them subjectively, this is the place where people end up. This is one of the things that I have that concerns me about the emergent church. They don't sit around to study the Word of God. They sit around to dialogue, to discuss. They don't want to be dogmatic about anything. They don't want to make judgments because they don't believe they can learn any objective truth from the Scriptures. Well, if we can't learn, why are we told to study? Why are we told to obey? And why are we warned about punishment and consequences if we don't obey? It's a total contradiction. Yet people sit there and buy this junk. Young people. Just like the universities indoctrination, the same thing with the emergent church. Indoctrination. Not exposition of the scriptures. Not handing you back to God so that God can deal with you. But removing this thing from the scriptures. Removing the warnings. 
twist, twisting the actual, sound like my brother, twisting like the actual limits. And what the word says, that's very, very dangerous. Verse 20. Notice he says here, <clears throat> Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, yes. That's the answer, the proper answer. The church will be removed at the rapture. The day of the Lord begins. It will be a day of darkness, a day of gloom. We are the only true restraining force in this nation. The laws are going by the wayside. There's no laws to restrain evil. They're ready to release all kinds of felons from prison. Our president wants to shut Gitmo and put them in our regular prisons here. Insane. When the laws are gone and they don't prosecute the evil person and, and retain them and restrain them, God's going to remove his church and there's going to be no breaks on this society, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be a real, real dark day. I can't even imagine. Verse 21, down to 24, you have the feast of Israel that repulsed God due to their hypocrisy and the corruption of them. Notice, verse 21 says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies, though you offer me burnt offerings, dedication and consecration, and your grain offering, offerings for service. I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offering. Peace offering was for fellowship. All of these can be found in Leviticus chapter 1 through 7, then the, the loss for them on the, other, uh, the following two chapters. He said, I don't honor these things. I don't accept them. They nauseate me. They, they, they don't do you any, any good at all. Um, I just hate them. Now, you might just read uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Um, he speaks about the same thing. Um, he says, you know, offer these um, blemished things to your governors. Uh, see if they'll accept them. See if they'll like them. And so they thought they were pleasing God. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 through 16, he speaks all about that. The offerings, again, they're rejected by God. And then in verse 23, the songs were painful to his ears. Um, look at 23. He said, Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your string instruments. Now, David sung with the, with the lyre, um, kind of a little harp, and, and unto the Lord. And uh, when a demon would come upon Saul, he would strum his, his lyre, and he would be appeased and... Many of the psalms are accompanied with string instrument and other instruments. Um, Satan was the choir director in heaven. I mean, music is for God, and God invented and created music. Nothing wrong with music. Sometimes people get carried away about the tune of the music and all that. That's not there. The important thing is the words, ladies and gentlemen. What are the words that are coming forth? Today, <clears throat> if you listen to a lot of the rap and all that, I hate rap. Because it's so vulgar. It's so degrading to God, definitely to women. 
Garbage in, garbage out. People know the best way to memorize and instill things in your mind, easy, is put music to it. You don't try to memorize that song. If they gave you a whole song written out and asked you to memorize it, it would take you a long time. But if they give you a song that you just listen to and you put it on, it'll be part of you in very little time. Satan is very clever. And so I have nothing with music itself, but it's the words. It can be a guitar, it can be an organ, it can be a cappella. I'm concerned about the words. Some Christian stuff I don't like because you can't even understand it. And it's more like a love song to a chick than worship to God. Okay? You want to listen to Christian music that's for entertainment? Fine, but that's not worship. There's a big difference between worship and just singing Christian songs. The psalms are for worship. Everything's all about God. Everything's all to His glory and everything. Now, you have to be careful. You don't get critical on all this and you get real legalistic, but you must make a distinction. And some things that's Christian shouldn't even be sung at all. If it's unbiblical, it's bad theology, and it doesn't give God any glory. You know what I mean? So you have to make some choices. Now, it hurt his ears. He didn't accept it. Look at verse 24. He says, But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Here's a key verse for the chapter and the book. The only thing that would remedy the relationship between them and God would be repentance. Here it is. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. This is the key verse. Let justice, mispot, there's the word again, decision towards the poor. Down, let it run down like water. Freely. Beautiful figurative image. You pour water like that, it just soaks and affects everything. Let righteousness run down like a mighty stream, just full-flowing, that would benefit people. The double emphasis is God's desire here. Figurative image, real clear. This is what would please God. This is what would get them right with God. Not doing things, but because you're seeking the Lord and you're turning from the evil and doing what pleases God and what's going to bring a benefit to people. And you're looking to God to bring this about. Verse 25 down to 27. You have um, the worship of idols had become their downfall, leading them to captivity. And he's going to mention some important things. Verse 25. He says, Do you offer me sacrifices and offerings? Uh, Or did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? It's a rhetorical question. There's only one answer. What is it? No. Listen. Look what follows. He says, You also carried Sukkus, your king, and Chiun, your gods, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourself. So, here in verse 
26, he is saying that in the offering in the, oh, in the wilderness, yes, they had the Levitical offerings, and many of them did, I think, but some did not. There was actually idolatry going on within the camp. Many times God had to chasten them. Fiery serpents were sent into the camp. God destroyed thousands at one time. And so here, Sikus means a tabernacle or tent or a shrine. It's also the name of a Babylonian deity. Uh, Shiun means uh, an image or a pillar. So it's a statue associated with a little shrine. um, And it's an image. And idolatry has to do with something physical to represent something that we pray to. Uh, I was a Catholic before I came to the Lord. And in Catholicism, you pray to saints. You pray to virgins, statues. You, you, you make your sign of the cross, you know what I mean, and all of that. And you, you trust in your scapular, your beads of the rosary, you know. Muslims pray beads too, and Catholics pray beads too. Same, no difference. It's idolatry. And yet um, people get infected by this and they feel so uh, bound to it that if they don't do it, God's going to get them. But it has nothing to do with Scripture whatsoever. So their heart was not right with God. Even in the wilderness, many of them were offering these uh, um, little offerings and dedications to these idols. And it's talking about one God in different forms. And even he speaks there about the stars themselves. Um, in verse uh, 27, it says, Therefore I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven again. And so um, the worship of the heavens, the stars, uh, all of this, and this is uh, Romans chapter 1, very clear. Um, people worship the creature more than the creator. Today the religion of the United States and the world is the worship of creation. That's where global warming comes in, Mother Earth, and saving the seal, and saving the, you know, the sea lion, and, and whatever, and, you know, and let's kill babies, and we put a animal life on a higher thing. I go home at night on Sunday, I just kind of relax and try to go through the TV, little that there's left, and, um, and then you see these commercials with, you know, um, like there used to be for missionaries, they put these kids, you know, that are just all bone and with their tears and flies over them to extract money from you. Now they do it with dogs. And they put the right music to it. You know what I say when I see him? Be compassionate. Put that dog out of his misery. He's an animal. Why do you want him to suffer? I'm going to send you money to support him monthly when there's people starving? You're a wacko. Be good to your animal. Feed it. Bathe it. Spend time with him. So he doesn't act like a slobbering idiot when you walk out in the backyard because he hasn't seen you for a month. If you don't have time for him, don't get a pet. But don't treat him like a man or like a woman, like a human being. The day when that dog can put pants on walking on hind legs, then he can come in the house. Simple. <clears throat> we, are, we are far gone with animals. Companion dogs. You can't even ask people for their credential. It's against the law. So you got a bunch of liars that just carry this little kick dog around and go into their places, food stores, churches, whatever. We're an unruly society. We've lost our mind. 
I'm waiting for people to tie their kid up in a leash in the, up to the fire hydrant. Next. I've seen those at Disneyland. They strap their kid like a dog, you know, so they don't lose them. My Lord. We are out to lunch, man. Well, let's move on. He moves on to chapter 6. In verse 1 through 7, you have the indictment against their false security. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. Ease. They're kicking back. They're enjoying their lease. They're wealthy. They've got all kinds of tax money. They're building these mansions. they got wine. they got women. Party, party. And they trust the mountain of Samaria, notable persons of the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. So these are the leaders. They're trusting the security of the location of the mountains of Samaria, that the enemy won't come in and take them. There won't be no judgment. People today, oh, I'm fine. I've got some money put away. You know what? When everything falls, I don't care what you have. You know, I, I've, I've, I've invested in gold, you know, because, you know, gold is always gold. Listen, the guy with the biggest gun is going to take your gold. You know what's going to be gold, true gold? Food and water. You can't eat gold. All right? I would have never believed when I was growing up that one day you were going to pay for a bottle of water. Are you kidding me? You're going to pay for water? Verse 2. Go over to Kelna. See, and from there go to Hamath, the great. Then go down to Gath, to the Philistines. It's going from the, from the north around to the, um, to the west and down south. Uh, are you better than, the, than these kingdoms? Rhetorical question. What's the answer? No. Or is their territory greater than your territory? No. So in other words, you think that you're better than these uh, cities and these nations and these territories? You're not. God is able to destroy you. God is able to destroy, listen, the Babylonian kingdom, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. You think God is intimidated by the United States? By Iran, maybe? You think God's afraid of ISIS? Don't call it ISIL. It's ISIS. ISIL includes Israel as the enemy. Google it. That's why the president always says ISIL, because he hates Israel. His whole administration uses ISIL, not ISIS. There's a big difference. ISIL includes the territory of Israel, the Jews, as enemies. When, when, when our president speaks nationally, publicly, there's two audiences. The Arabs and the Muslims that understand what he's saying and the American public, and the American public that doesn't. <laughs> it's real simple. Real, real simple. And so the notable leaders here, uh, in verse 2, he's dealing... With, with, with these cities that um, can be traced um, uh, in Genesis 10.10 10 and in Genesis 10.18, these cities uh, um, go over to Kelne. It's the modern day of uh, Kaloon Key, 12 miles southeast of um, Arpad. Again, Genesis 10.10. 10. Um, Hamath there with an H, not uh, Hamas, but the great city on the Rantas River halfway between 
um, Aleppo, they tell us, and Damascus, the capital city of Syria, Genesis 10:18. So these were incredible places. Damascus, one of the oldest cities in the world, uh, mighty cities, uh, empires, um, and yet we have now Syria. This is the area of Syria. We have Syria right now. The the, uh, the um, Russians are in there. You know, as I said, ground troops, they're bombing. And they're bombing, they're killing all the people that President Obama trained. Great. You know how much billions of dollars? Worthless. Train the Kurds. Kurds will take care of them. <laughs> My son used to make me crack up. He says, Dad, you got to see some of these guys. We go there to train them. They can't even do a jumping jack. They're all uncoordinated. They're going... And they're cracking up. And, and these guys are going to fight? He says, they run. And then the enemy takes our tanks, our jeeps, and our guns. It's amazing. The strategy is, is not for victory, it's for defeat, ladies and gentlemen. Notice um, verse 3, he says, Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come near. So those people that keep saying here in verse 3, ah, it's, it's, it's far away, it's not going to touch us, who cares? You remember Hezekiah? Isaiah said, Hezekiah, who are those men? Oh, there was just some good guys from Babylon. You know, they came, they heard I was sick. You know, they asked me because I was okay. Yeah, and, they, and you know, and they asked me, you know, well, what do you show them? There's nothing in my house that I didn't show them. I showed them everything. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. They're going to come one day and take everything away. Babylonians. See, Babylon was not an empire then. And you know what Hezekiah said? Well, is it in my lifetime? No. He says, oh wait, no big deal. You know what I'm concerned about? Right now? I'm not concerned about me. I'm concerned about my son, my daughter, my grandchildren. If you're only concerned about you, something's wrong with you. These guys are saying, that's a far off, it's not going to happen. Look at verse 4. Who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. From beginning verse 4, you have the sins that destroyed the nation. First it's sex. They lie on beds of ivory. The empire of Ahaz. His palace, known as for its ivory. This is not just... They're not in trouble because they're just sitting on the couch. There's nothing wrong with stretching yourself on the couch. But it has to do with sexual practices with these individuals. They're sex-crazed people. Look at the United States. We think we're so liberated. The United States is just corrupted in sex. Destroying. There's no decency. There's no honor to the woman. There's no honor even for the man or anything. It's just crazy. It destroys the society. So here they boast. Oh man, I had a great time. You should have seen this check I picked up. Man, the hotel's up there. King Ahaz Palace, man, they got ivory ones. Huge ones. Hmm. Looking five. Well, notice at the end of 4.2, lambs from the flock and calves. So you have a, a gluttony, you know. And our nation is just, people just love to pig out, 
We have a problem with our society. We're overweight. We just eat whatever. We, you know, we just, it, it's, it's a problem. And so people just party hardy, you know. Notice in verse 5, who sing idly to the sound of string instruments and invent yourself musical instruments like David. So entertainment. So you have sex, you have um, uh, gluttony, you have musical instruments, just entertaining, you know, they're into it. Uh, verse 6, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved by the affliction of Joseph. So they're, they're you know, they're alcoholics, these guys. They, they, they drink in bowls, not, not a bottle or nothing. No, it's like spring break, you know. They put a hose down their mug and, you know, and they... They chuckle like it, right? Um, not a regular glass, but you know, this big old bowl. And we just fill it up and we just boast on how much we drink. And, and, and this is the whole aspect, destroying the nation. It, it destroys our nation completely. This is not talking about social drinking. This is talking about just uh, debauchery. And they're celebrating all this sinful lifestyle. This is epidemic in our nation. Always has been. It gets more progressive each time. Look at verse 7. Therefore, they shall now go into captivity as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. So again, they're banquetings. You know, leaning back, reclining, you know, having a good time. The rich are the first to go into captivity. They're stripped of all their wealth, of everything they have, um, there's, there's no way out. There's no escape. In verse 8 to 14, you have the judgment of Israel pronounced. Look at 8 and 11 here. The terror of God will grip um, the people. Verse 8 says, The Lord God has sworn by himself, and the Lord God of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate the palaces, therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. So God, again, um, is speaking directly to the leaders. He uh, swears by himself. Uh, he can swear by nothing higher, Hebrews 6.13. He has spoken often through Amos about taking an oath on himself, Amos 4.2, over and over again. God is the one fighting against the people, the Lord God of hosts, the captain of the armies of he, he abhors Jacob, the pride, the destruction that's brought upon a person because they don't pay heed to God, because they feel they know everything. Satan again fell by pride, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Over and over again, he's called the captain of the armies of heaven, 413, 514, 515, 527, 614, 95, over and over again. God is not intimidated by man. Notice God would decimate the nation. Verse 9, Then it shall come to pass that if ten are remaining, one house, they shall die. Nine. Now he's already spoke about that before. Her name is 5.3. God was just striking them dead. He warned them over and over again. Ten men were required for the minimum of worship or a synagogue. You have the women at the riverside there when Paul got to uh, Philippi. Because there weren't enough men for it. In verse 10 it says, And it shall come to pass that 
If ten men remain one house, they shall die. So God just is striking them. And when a relative of the dead with one who will burn the bodies picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to one inside the house, are there any more with you? And someone will say, none. And he will say, shh, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. So in other words, there were so many corpses that pestilence began. That's why they're burning the bodies so there's not other infections. People get infected and they die. And when you have a mass corpses, you don't have time to bury them. You put them in a common burial and you burn them. Otherwise, disease spreads. But here they say, shh, don't say nothing. Because they, instead of yielding, repenting to God, they get hardened and bitter. And they say, don't mention his name. Every time you mention him, somebody else gets killed around here. Wow. You would think that they would repent. Mm -mm. Just don't mention his name. Wow. Amazing. Verse 11 says, For behold, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. In other words, rich and poor doesn't matter. Leader or subject, it doesn't matter. Now he gives another rhetorical question to show their foolishness. Do horses run on rocks? No. They'll slip, they'll break their legs, throw their rider. Does one plow there with oxen? No. You'll break your instrument, you damage your ox, you get hurt. Yet, you have turned justice into gall, wormwood, bitterness, hemlock, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. It goes back to that key verse. Verse 12. So God is using the rod of his anger, his wrath, Assyria, Isaiah 10, 5. Here, he deals straight with them. You guys wouldn't do these two things, but yet look what you do do. 13 says, you who rejoice over Lodabar, now he uses more sarcasm, who say, have we not taken Kermayan, for ourselves by our own strength. In verse 13, they're boasting about their conquest of these two things. The sarcasm of the prophet is clear. It's a play on words. Lodabar means none or nothing. <laughs> You're boasting about nothing. These places are nothing. They're not great locations. They're, they're nothing. You've got a piece of property out there in the desert. Or up in the Hicksville or something. It's just, it's nothing. What are you boasting about? Remember Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9, 3 and 17, 27, when David called him? Where was he hiding? Lodabar. And yet he was the king's son. The son of Jonathan. Well, not a king, but he was going to be the rightful king according to the passing down from Saul. Load the bar, that's where he was. And they bragged about this city, Carmayim, uh, and against it means horn. Horns are a symbol of strength. So here they're boasting about nothing. It's just really a, a joke. So he's using sarcasm. 
And you guys are, you're under judgment and you guys are, are bringing this up. You're, you're boasting about this stuff. So in verse 14, it says, Behold, I will rise up, a na- I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. And here he's uh, talking about Assyria very clearly. From Lebanon, the mountains of Lebanon south to the south end of the Dead Sea. They're going to take everything. And here you're boasting about what you've conquered. These places are nothing. And you're, 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 you're ignoring the danger. As if Amos was saying, you're saying the Assyrians are the JV team? You don't understand the scenario. These guys are going to kill you, wipe you out. You're going to captivity and you're not coming back as a divided nation ever again. But I will bring you back after the Babylonian captivity. As a broken nation, a humble nation. And I will do a great work. God doesn't like to do this kind of stuff, but he's willing to do it if he has no choice. And God doesn't have choices to bless sometimes. Because there's hardened hearts, there's bitterness, there's a refusal to repent. There's an arrogance to say, I know better. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. I've got it all wired. And the angels are going up there in heaven. Sheesh, I can't believe this guy. Angels must just blow their mind how dumb we are. They, they really have to. Because Peter says they stoop down to look a day at a time what's going on in the church because they don't know the future. And they just must go crazy. When they saw the Lord being crucified, they, 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 I'm, I'm sure they were saying, Father, can we go down there? Just waiting for the order to just rescue him. When they saw the horror of what was happening, the second person of the Trinity. But they're ministering servants of their salvation to God's bidding. And they must look down and just blow their mind how, how foolish we are at times. God is graceful. God is merciful. God wants to pardon. God wants to restore. God wants to do an incredible work. But it doesn't happen through the flesh. It doesn't happen the way we want. It doesn't happen according to our standards. It happens to be according to God's word and his alone. And that means that it's not my will, but his. It means that I am the servant. I am the one in trouble. I am the one in need of forgiveness. I am the one in need of reconciliation. I am the one that has to fear judgment, not God. Once I get those dots and I can connect them, you see some people have all the dots. They just can't connect the dots. They haven't connected the dots. They think they're okay. If you connect the dots, they spell out hell or heaven. That's the choice, ladies and gentlemen. And it only comes through repentance. Father, thank you for your grace and love and your goodness. Thank you for tonight. We pray you just minister our hearts. We thank you for just your goodness, Lord.
I pray for every person here. I pray that your hand be upon them. And Lord, Father, if someone doesn't know you, here over the internet, you would just speak to them, Lord, of your love and care for them. And your desire for them to repent as you are there, Father, willing to forgive and to make new. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved. To repent of your sins. To ask Him to be your Lord and Savior. For Him to take hold of your life. Call all the shots. Let Him do the driving. Maybe you're over the internet and you find yourself in that position. That you likewise can ask Him in your heart. This is the prayer of repentance. It's not any special kind of prayer. It's just a prayer from your heart. Acknowledging your sinfulness. Asking Him to forgive you. And He will do that. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so if you want to be born again, this is your prayer. You ask the Lord, and he will take you at your word right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you made that decision, brother to my right, your left, Tony will meet you there. He'll give you a Bible absolutely free. Share some important things for your growth. You'll be free to leave. But don't leave here before you, the same way you came in. Go over there. They'll give you that Bible. We'll wait for you for the baptism. The rest of you, if you're going to get baptized, we'll close in the short song and then we'll get changed come on back and then we'll give you some instructions and we'll dunk you let's stand